Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your monthly podcast where we bring you some nerdy details from the world of EBM. A lot's been going on this month. Um, As we record this, Boris has just gone back into Parliament. We've heard that Trump's being impeached. There's a lot of opinion flying around. And what we want to do is bring some evidence. So, to do that, I'm joined by Carl Hennigan. Carl, can you introduce yourself? Yes, my name's Carl Hennigan. I'm a GP and an academic and editor-in-chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. That's academic is uh, condensing that down an awful lot there. <laughs> well, I've been told I should speak less, so that's what I'm trying to do this week. <laughs> <laughs> and also Helen MacDonald. Helen. Hi, I'm Helen MacDonald, UK research editor and arresting GP. Arresting GP. So... Uh, As always, as we go through this, if there is anything that you find particularly interesting, anything that you find uh, you don't quite agree with, then we want to hear from you. And later we're going to hear from someone who uh, has some comments on the way we talked about Tramadol a couple of podcasts ago. So if you want to do that, go to bmj.com slash podcasts where you'll find out how to get in contact with us. It's really easy. You just have to record yourself on your iPhone or whatever, and email it in. Right, as always, we want to do a start and a stop. Um, So, Carl, you've brought uh, this paper where people need to stop eating so much. Yeah, no, look, this is a really interesting trial. It's a two years of calorie restriction and cardiometabolic risk trial, calorie for the acronym. It's published in Lancet Diabetes Endocrinology. And it's a really interesting study in that what they did is randomise young, healthy adults aged 21 to 50. So it's a trial that both of you could participate. Unfortunately, I would be excluded. (laughs) And it's people with BMIs that you consider generally normal, 22 to 28. And they were randomised to calorie restriction. And they were asked to restrict their calories by 25% compared to a normal control diet followed up for two years, looked at their weight loss, but also looked at all of their cardiometabolic risk factors. And what they found at two years was actually the intervention group only restricted their calories by about 11.9% compared to more or less zero in the normal calorie diet. And what they also found, though, was that actually the intervention led to seven and a half kilos of, on average of weight loss compared to no weight loss in the control group. But also every single cardiometabolic risk factor came down. And what they show is they talk about two really important things about that is the effect of young life when you're in your middle ages that you restrict calories. You can arrive at the age of 50 potentially with normal cardiometabolic risk factors and here's what's really interesting which I found in the back of the paper they basically say if you look at the framing and heart study individuals with optimal cardiometabolic risk factors aged 50 years have a 13 times lesser risk of developing cardiovascular disease during their remaining lifetime so be fit till 50 and then you can do what you like afterwards. Well, the, the interesting thing... <laughs> that's, no, not quite. <laughs> but what's interesting about this is that if you look at the intervention, actually, this intervention is very difficult to achieve. There was a one-month training period where you had training on what you could actually eat to get to the calories that you need, and there was counselling sessions and so forth carrying on to make sure you kept your calorie restriction. I think I'd need counselling if I cut my calories by 25%. Yeah, so... But even if you... So the first thing, if you aim for 25%, you probably get to 10%, so it's really 
really difficult to do that. So we're talking about 200 calories a day to cut out. Not a lot. But actually, we've got to think of this as a complete population approach instead of an individual approach. Somehow, we've got to get everybody getting to 50 with the cardiometabolic risk factors normal or normalised, if you like. And if we do that, we see less heart disease and strokes going forward. To do that, we need population approaches and really think about everybody who feels they're a bit fit, a bit healthy, still has to eat a little bit less. Mm. So th- you're talking about populations there, but when you kind of go into the detail and look at actually the difference in, I don't know, triglyceride level or blood pressure or whatever. Um, for me, from the outside, uh, it didn't look very much as GPs. You know, would that be something, that change, would that be something you think is significant in, in a patient in front of you? Well, it's interesting. If you look at figure two in the paper, it shows you the change in systolic blood pressure. Well, in the intervention group, it came down by about two millimetres of mercury and went up in the in control group by about half to one millimetre of mercury. But I think the answer to Duncan's question is no, isn't it? Well, at an individual level. Yeah, so at an individual, a difference for you of two to three millimetres of mercury is not going to make much difference to your cardiovascular risk. But if everybody had a two to three millimetre reduction in blood pressure of across the whole population, on a, in a year that get rid of about ten or 12,000 strokes. And there's a really good book I tell all my students to read, which is Jeffrey Rose's Strategies of Preventive Medicine, which talk about the difference between populations and individual approaches. And this has a population-wide approach, mm. but not so much individual benefits. Mm. So there you go. Maybe Brexit food shortages will give us a natural experiment to see uh, how that's going to go. Well, you may laugh at level. that, but this has happened in places like the war. What happened in the war when alcohol was reduced? Oh, the did av- you say you were Uh, Yeah, (laughs) Uh, on average, uh, I'm going to carry on. On average, because the average alcohol consumption went down, the proportion of people with alcohol disease went down. And actually, that does happen when you have restrictions in some products. There are some benefits overall. Mm. The um, study itself, the calorie study, I was just having a quick read about that. It's really interesting. It's all based on this idea that in rats, they saw calorie restriction actually increased life expectancy and they wondered if it would work in people I think we're getting too far away from human health here. <laughs> I'm going to bring us back because I've got um, another paper in our start stop category so was that a start or a stop? I don't know Carl, yours I think you should stop. start restricting your calories but you should try and look for a sort of a way that you can do it pragmatically without trying to go to a ridiculous 25% figure so 10% to me is a couple of digestive biscuits isn't it in a day mm-hmm. They've got to go, folks. Mm. So start restriction, stop the biscuits. All right, I've got more restriction to come. So as uh, as Dunk said, there's lots going on in UK politics at the moment, and I believe Boris has promised us a new exciting domestic agenda. And with that in mind, I picked out this study, which I thought was quite an interesting one for public health, um, on minimum unit pricing for alcohol because alcohol is the seventh most important global risk factor for premature death. And in the UK, we drink quite a lot of it. And in May, Scotland became the first country in the world to introduce this policy of having a minimum unit pricing. So you can't buy alcohol there for less than 50p per unit, a unit being half a pint of um, average strength beer or cider. 
Um, so this paper is an interrupted time series paper comparing Scotland to other areas in the north of England and they use um, data from Cantor World Panel Household Shopping um, Survey including people's receipts to look at how patterns in alcohol purchasing have changed since the policy came in um, and they wanted to look if there was a change in which groups of people had that happened and particularly if it has happened in the people that were at the highest risk of getting um, alcohol problems so people drinking a lot of alcohol and drinking lots of cheap alcohol. Um, and they found that since May, there's been an increase in the price of alcohol by about 5p per unit. And people bought about 1.2 units less per week per adult per household. Um, and the most notable reductions were for beer, spirits and cider, including own brand spirits and high strength ciders. And those were particularly the drinks that the uh, policy wanted to target. And they found that the biggest price increases were in the households, again, that they wanted to target. So um, lower income groups and in those who bought the most alcohol, where it made a difference of around £3 a week to the household budget. And this was kind of supporting the idea that minimum unit pricing effectively targets those people who are most at risk. And there'd been modelling studies on this before, but this is... um, this is really using some real world evidence which is emerging to look to see whether whether it's the case and commenting on it uh, in an editorial some public health experts have said obviously it is not a panacea but they seem quite pleased uh, with the results which are which are twice that that the modelling studies had suggested so um, I thought Boris might want to include that in his plan which is why I bought it. Well actually I talked to one of the authors of that paper about the modelling um, that you talked about and how well that was done now that they can actually go and check this with real world data. Um, So let's have a listen to this snippet of that interview. My name's Peter Anderson. Um, I'm a professor of alcohol studies at uh, Newcastle University. The group that did the modelling, the Sheffield group, they're they're world leaders in doing this work. And yes, of course, you're going to err on the side of caution um, because you don't want to uh, be caught out by making unwarranted claims. So I think it was done really accurately, those models. I mean, mean, models are always, I mean, that's what they are. They're models um, and they're not going to tell you the exact... um, you know, what exactly is going to happen. But those models did predict that there would be a drop in consumption. What we found, in fact, is that the drop in consumption was higher than what the models predicted. Um, and that's you know, that's not kind of unexpected. Uh, they all gone in the same direction. So we, would, we, we think the models were really very accurate. What we found in reality is that the drop actually was greater than what the models predicted, um, which I think is sort of encouraging news for, for the policy change. Yeah, Peter Armstrong there, and you can hear more from him on uh, another podcast episode, which I'll link uh, from the podcast text for that. Carl? There is a a paper in BMJ Open, a systematic review by Boniface in 2017, that highlighted there are 33 studies in this area. And what I like about this paper, it did something a bit neater in terms of, because all the studies are observational, you can't randomise cluster areas to pricing because the problem is everybody will just cross over the border where the alcohol's cheaper. So it's a really difficult study to do. So you have to do observational studies where you look at the exposure or the change in price and see what happened. 33 studies, but what they did is use the Bradford Hill criteria 
and looked at every item of the Bradford Hill criteria, which there are nine, and said the current evidence is clear that it meets every one of them criteria that price in effect alcohol consumption. So, for instance, there's a clear association and a strong association with pricing across all studies, and they're consistent. And they're a temporal, so the change in price gives rise to the actual change in the alcohol consumption. It's not the other way around. But one of the other things they show is a dose effect. So actually, you can keep pushing up the price a bit more and actually keep getting reductions and reductions. And what this is really helpful is what you say is then checking if this evidence says this, do you actually get this in the real world? And I think that's policy in action with evidence is really important. Mm. It's really interesting. So there, you know, reducing alcohol intake, maybe reducing uh, food intake is... uh, it's a good thing, generally. Um, well, actually, interestingly, about alcohol can provide about 10 or 11% of your cal- calories, so it's one of the simple ways to restrict calories, actually, really easily. Um, yeah, well, that's a first, isn't it? Well, you'll be pleased to hear, because uh, the WHO do this survey of young people mm. uh, every year. We had uh, some research on this a little while ago, and in younger people, the rates of alcohol consumption are, are falling off a cliff. People are not drinking nearly as much as they used to. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is what most people recognise is if you go into a supermarket, some of this alcohol is incredibly cheap and then it's put on offer, isn't it? And it can have sales where it's free for the price of two in your life. And then you go into a bar or somewhere and it's incredibly expensive. So there's a mismatch in the price and what people are doing. And you mentioned this issue about uh, liver disease and fatty liver. In fact, it's the only chronic disease where we're seeing a significant rise in the problem. And it's because lots more people are drinking in the home setting where they can buy incredibly cheap alcohol. Great. Well, so there we go. Just stop drinking and uh, we will live longer. And I was hoping we'd it. go for a drink after this, but we've now <laughs> ruled that out, haven't we? <laughs> can just have a sparkling water. <laughs> Hello, Talk Evidence team. My name's Britt Montgomery. I'm a GP in Western Australia. I wanted to add some thoughts about tramadol. In a recent podcast episode, you discussed an EBM verdict article which took the view that it's time to stop prescribing tramadol postoperatively because it was slightly more strongly associated with longer-term opioid use than were other short-acting opioids. This was based on an observational study of insurance data published recently in the BMJ. There wasn't a lot of discussion in the podcast about whether this association was causal. I think scepticism about causality is often important when we're considering observational studies, and I think it is in this case. Specifically, I think confounding by indication could explain some or all of the association here. Rather than tramadol causing the long-term opioid use, I think it might go the other way, that doctors who sense that patients may have potential drug dependency issues might choose to prescribe tramadol for them instead of other opiates. I think listeners will know that there's a sort of common wisdom around tramadol, that it's kind of a weaker opiate, maybe less likely to cause some opioid side effects, perhaps less likely to lead to addiction. And I think a doctor prescribing discharge pain medicine for a patient who intuits that their patient might be at risk for problematic opioid use might well reach for tramadol. If these patients go on to have more difficulty weaning off opiates postoperatively than other patients, then an association between tramadol and longer-term opiate use would emerge even if the tramadol wasn't the culprit. I think it's plausible that the quoted number needed to harm of 272 could be explained this way. The authors of the observational study have taken some steps to avoid confounding, but there's no way a study based only on insurance claim data can capture the sort of clinical nuances I'm talking about. 
And look, I'm no tramadol fanboy. Like the Talk Evidence crew, I'm dubious about tramadol's place in treatment, given its weirdly unpredictable pharmacokinetics. And I also question the wisdom of tramadol being regulated more leniently than other opiates here in Australia. It's certainly not my favourite drug. But I just can't quite convince myself that this new evidence, with such a small effect size and such plausible confounding, should really be practice changing. But anyway, enough ranting from me. I'm keen to hear from Helen and Carl and Duncan. Thanks to you all for producing such an interesting podcast that I enjoy each month. Cheers. He's right, isn't he? Uh, without an RCT, we can't actually be sure about that direction of association. So thank you, Brett, for pointing that out. Um, Carl, where does this leave us now? So if you wait to get the randomised controlled trial, then we'll paralyse practice and just have inertia and we'll continue with the status quo. So the first thing about evidence-based medicine is you have to go with the best available evidence at the time. And it seems to me within surgery, there are alternatives that are short, short course durations. I still think you could go and answer this with further observational data to check within your own setting what happens to the people who do get on tramadol. And then you could ask, what are the reasons? Is it that actually we're giving them to people are more dependent in the first place and that explains most of the effect well then you can use this and integrate the evidence into your own clinical practice integrate the two and come up with some answer to what you do in the meantime though it makes sense to try and use the short acting pain relief and explore some of these other factors that might be affecting the decision to use tramadol and long-term opiates well brett i hope that's answered your question thanks for that carl so uh, if, like Brett, you want to get in touch, as I said, go to bmj.com slash podcasts. You can find out how to do that. Great. So we've done start, stop. We've had some listener response. Um, and now there are things to uh, for people out there to read, things that have caught your eye. So, uh, Helen... This might even be a rant, I suppose. Um, cancer drugs. This is based on some research that we published pretty recently. Yes. So this is research that's recently out in the BMJ asking how strong the evidence base is uh, behind new cancer drugs approved by the European Medicines Agency, the regulator in Europe. And they look at studies and reports from the EMA where drugs were approved and this is quite an important question because about a quarter of the drugs that the EMA look at are for cancer and it's the biggest category of drugs. So it's quite a good group of drugs to see what the regulator's up to. And secondly, there are questions about whether cancer drugs uh, and new cancer drugs um, are effective enough and sufficiently affordable. So this, in some ways, is quite a simple study. What they did was take uh, approvals from 2014 until 2016. They found 32 drugs were approved over that time based on 54 studies and 41 of them um, were uh, randomised controlled trials. So that's 75% of the studies supporting um, the approvals were trials. And this is down from about 90% between 2009 and 2013, which is quite an interesting observation in itself. And the authors say that about half of these trials are at high risk of bias, and particularly that they were missing outcome data and there were some problems with the outcome. Um, and these were the two biggest concerns about bias in the studies. Overall, they found that studies that looked at overall survival as compared to 
progression-free survival or other surrogate outcomes were at lower risk of bias. Only about 20% of them were at high risk of bias. And the regulators also identified problems judging whether the drug made a substantial clinical difference. Um, They noted that there were poor choices of comparators often, so maybe just comparing different doses of the cancer drug rather than comparing it to um, another treatment option. Some studies were just single arm. And in some studies, there were inadequate study endpoints. So the regulator might have asked for information on overall survival, but been given a different outcome. And recent systematic reviews have shown that progression-free survival and disease responses are not very well um, correlated with survival gains or quality of life, which matter most to cancer patients. So based on this study, the authors call for better reporting of cancer research um, and, and almost seem to be calling on the regulators to try and enforce this. And they call for stronger emphasis on overall survival in um cancer studies rather than progression-free survival, um, which can overestimate um, the benefits of a drug. So what did I make of this and what did Carl make of this? I can see that he's itching to say something. (laughs) Um, It's obviously quite a complicated area. (laughs) Look, it's a mess. (laughs) I'm I'm coming in with it. Just say your your piece. Well, look, you've made some in there. There are some important points. Let's, Let's just look what's going on. We, we, we're reducing the number of trials that we need for new drugs. So we've gone from 90% of RCTs down to 75%. We're also reducing the actual number of trials from two to one because we've had these expedited pathways where now drugs come on the market quicker with surrogate outcomes and no overall survival. So that actually makes it harder to understand. And then when they do do an RCT, at least half of them are poor quality and actually in the background there are loads of issues that we don't know about. Mm. And I'll tell you, there's another paper that Diana Zuckerman did in JAMA that also said, well, look, in the FDA, they looked at what happened when you get the post-marketing studies, when the FDA looked for post-marketing studies, and they're just as bad. So the whole system means that you're producing more and more cancer drugs, and it's harder and harder to see whether they make any difference, and there are actually gains. And the cost is going up. So it's almost like an utterly perfect mess. It's like you've got all the ingredients in there. You've no idea how to put them together. And you take the cake out there and you just can't even tell whether it tastes any good. Mm. And so we've got this system, to me, that is in urgent need of remedial action. And, um, I mean, Hussein Nietzsche, who was uh, one of the authors on that, and I spoke to him about this, had published a previous article with us about what are the endpoints that um, are chosen in these and, and like the FDA, uh, they looked post um, post approval at the, the the studies after, and we still have no idea about things like you know overall mortality. Well, actually, there's a very simple solution to this, to some standard, is to standardise the size of the trials. Just say we understand the sort of benefits we're looking for, which is a certain amount of survival. You could have a certain length, which is say two years, and if you meet a two-year overall. Su- not an overall survival, but the surrogate progression-free survival at that point, you say, right, you can continue, but we want you to continue on for year three, four, and see if you meet the overall survival benefit. So and there was some two, information can, in here yeah. that said that actually waiting for that overall survival didn't take that long. So on yeah. average, it only took about 11 months longer to get the outcome that you actually needed to make the decision. Mm. The uh, average survival benefit was only like three-point-something months for these these cancer drugs even well you see the thing is it it sounds not a lot but actually if you have drugs with actually not significant side effect profiles you get two or three drugs together you've suddenly got a year haven't you 
So actually, there is potential for compounds to do really well. If you focus and say, now, minimum requirement is overall survival for cancer drugs. And based on that, we'll pay more for the ones that give us more survival and less for the ones that don't. So do you think, do you agree with the authors that the power for this lies with the regulators? Oh, definitely. It's nothing will ever change until the regulator. And the problem is here, it has to be aligned across uh, across the Atlantic, if you like. So the FDA has to have the same viewpoint as European. Otherwise, it just breaks down. So it's an international regulatory approach. To it needs drugs. to be aligned within the regulator as well. And that was something else Hussein said when I talked to him. Um, let's hand over to him because I think he can explain it um, much better than me. So here's Hussein Nechi, Assistant Professor of Health Policy at the London School of Economics. So it's, it's really interesting. We found some instances where the EMA's decision-making committee against CHMP um, commented on, for instance, the appropriateness of an outcome. Uh, they, they said something like, um, we wish um, this trial used overall survival rather than progression-free survival as an endpoint. But then they continued on to say that actually that trial design feature was approved by European Medicines Agency's own scientific advice that was given to the company years earlier. So there's an opportunity for the regulators when they are interacting with companies when they're at the point of designing these trials, which happens quite early on in the process, to give very clear guidance and expectations about what type of trials are acceptable um, and reasons as to why that is the case. What is really unfortunate from, uh, I mean, to, to, to a researcher like myself who is really interested in these issues, but also I think for wider society, it's really important um, to know what guidance the regulator is giving to the company. And it's really unfortunate that that scientific advice and the contents of that advice, that guidance, remains commercial in confidence. We have no access to that information um, because companies consider that to be um, to be uh, really valuable and, and important um, for their commercial interests, not necessarily for societal interests. So there's huge need for transparency, I think, in that and accountability to understand what regulators are asking for and why they're asking for that to make sure that we get the best type of trials that we would want. It seems strange to have your hands tied, though, isn't it? I mean, surely you can change your mind, can't you? Well, the other thing is transparency in this, at least over the shores, all of this is in the public domain and meetings happen of regulators in the public. And so all of these minutes and all of these meetings should be freely available because these decisions really matter and people have to be held at account. Until we change the transparency agenda, we're going to end up in this messy world of not quite sure. So which, which areas would you like to be transparent? So I think when you've got regulatory committees that are meeting... Then meetings should be available and webcast and the minutes should be made freely available because the decisions made, so if it's clear a, a regulator said you have to change the protocol, we need to be able to be very clear it was done with the best intentions in mind to improve the quality of the study design. And what we're finding is when we get all of these minutes, we can go back in time. Sometimes we're looking and going, it was obvious there was a decisional issue along the way that affected the quality of this study. And that has to be wiped out, if you like. And the only way to do that is through transparency. And I guess they would argue that some of these meetings are 
have commercially confidential information in them, would they? What I mean, what's the motivation for those well, for actually, that information not being in the public domain by default? Well, actually, the argument is the opposite in America. It has to be in the public domain because they do have commercial confidential commercial issues. So that actually share prices matter on these decisions, mm. all sorts of issues. So if there's a room locked to people who are acting not in the best interest of everybody, that affects all sorts of commercial issues. So I think it's actually the other argument. People should be able to understand actually if this is a product that's on high quality evidence and is going to make a difference there and then at the regulatory stage they can start to share that info and it's quite interesting what um how patients view this isn't it because i did some reading around this um and in australia there'd been quite an interesting um exploration done via via their parliament of public views on cancer drugs and pricing um and it's interesting the range of views that there are and also how people with cancer view risk and benefits and how that might alter. And I think, Dunk, you mentioned you did quite an interesting interview with someone from Cancer Research UK who I thought had some really interesting ideas about how cancer drugs might be evaluated. Yeah, it wasn't an interview, just a sort of background chat. It was based on um, a blog that they wrote about... uh, something called outcomes-based pricing. And Carl, you sort of mentioned paying more for things that work well, and I thought this was quite an interesting idea. Mm. So essentially you, at some point, set a kind of baseline of how well a drug's mm. going to do um, based on maybe some patient important outcomes rather than, you know, all the other ones. Uh, a company sets that, agrees it. If it does better, then they get an extra payment but importantly if it doesn't do that well then you know they have to give some money back so it sort of creates this feedback by which they're incentivized to be truthful about the uh, and this this might be but I do think we've got to create incentives in the system to incentivize a better evidence base so one of the other things that's coming at the moment is that the problem is they develop a drug and they acquire the patent then you have phase one, two, three studies, and then the clock's ticking, isn't it? So you're probably into about year 10, 12 now, and you're thinking, we've only got about eight or 10 years left of the market access. Therefore, let's get the studies out there and get selling really quickly while we can make patent life money, if you like. So there could also be some incentives that say, if you extend the amount of evidence into three, five years, potentially should we be talking about slightly extending the patent life to incentivise the higher quality evidence so you get a few more years added on the end of your patent to recoup the money. So I think both arguments are really in there. But at the moment, if you look at some of these drugs, they're in the cost of them is outlandish. I mean, in excess, or most of them are coming in more than $100,000 a year now in the US and then arriving here with similar price tags. And we're getting these organisational now patients who are really angry and nice looking at them and saying these are not cost effective at these prices because they don't match a value-based proposition. Mm. Mm. That did turn into a bit of a rant, I think. It did. I think but also quite an interesting I'm discussion. I'm feeling quite relaxed today, but I think <laughs> we're not quite at the rant phase. As relaxed as you yeah. get about uh, EBM. But I think this is, what concerns me here is we may have lots of development for the next 10 or 20 years but a very difficult time in, in deciding which drugs work compared because there's just so many on the market. We don't trust the evidence base and it's pretty poor quality and it's not clear what's working out of everything in the midst of 
this sort of development phase of evidence which is actually going backwards not forwards mm. so again if you out there listening have some ideas about how to fix this uh yeah please do let us know because it seems like um it definitely needs to be done so despite the fact that you're pretty relaxed carl um i suspect this will induce a bit of a rant um You've been looking at supply chains. So earlier, last time, we, we mentioned Brexit and that that's uh, affecting potentially supply chains of medicine, but it opens up a can of worms about other problems with our supply chain. So what have you found? Well, last week, last, last episode, I talked about, the, you know, there was these sort of news articles, no deal Brexit may worsen drug shortages, shortages, pharmacists warned. And then irrespective of what side of the argument, people get up and rant, we're going to run out of medicines. And I said, I wish somebody would produce the evidence. And as I left, I thought, well, maybe I should go and look up <laughs> the evidence. And that's what we did. Working some colleagues of mine, Jeff Aronson and Robin Ferner, suddenly really interested in this issue that actually the first thing is to say is there is a global shortage of medicine the supply and distribution that's happening across all of the continents but how does it happen well look let's just see the size of the problem first in netherlands 769 shortages france 871 shortages america 213 shortages belgians are reporting five percent of their essential medicines are in shortage so and this is happening all the time, every month, every country is now replying supply shortages. So the first thing is to realise it generally happens with generic medicines. Mm. And generics are become cheaper very rapidly and the amount of profit is less. And the most sites that produce these generics are in India and China, which have about 7,000 sites. We only have about 1,900 in Europe and about 600 in USA. They get made and then they're given to distributors who then are distributed in supply chains around Europe or America. Now, the problem is in then is we created a free market approach. So first thing is to say whoever's prepared to pay the most will probably get the supply. So paying more in one country will lead to shortages in another. Fluctuations in the pound can lead to shortages. Fluctuations in guidelines can actually lead to shortages. So if you have a new change in guidelines, clinical use comes up, demand goes up, they shift, and then you'll pay more. So in the UK, we have had this system called price concessions where we will pay more to ensure supply. And in the last 12 months, I've looked at openprescribing.net. Ben Goldacre sent me these data. We've paid £160 million more than what we should have done to try and ease the supply change because we're getting into shortages problems. It's disproportionately affecting antimicrobials and cancer drugs. And this is a huge, huge problem. And we are in a bit of a mess. And we have to fix it because everybody will know the best thing to do if you want to make more profit is to restrict supply. So when we had the recent Saudi oil problems, what happened to the price of petrol? Price of oil shot up really quickly. So the incentives are there for these middlemen to create shortages in all of these different countries and then pass around these supplies at a higher price. This is now getting onto the radar. The European Association of Hospital Pharmacists are reporting that pharmacists are spending up to a third of their time trying to get supplies of medicines in as opposed to doing their day job. And actually, I've wrote to the EU and the European Medicines Agency saying urgently we need some res- resolution of this to ensure secure the supply of drugs. And in America, they are bringing in a continuous monitoring program to try and say, we have problems, we have to fix it as well. And they're seeing it as a serious issue. Hmm. So it's a lot more complicated than Brexit. 
Well, it's, it, well, Brexit, you see, is one of them issues that actually provides you with interruptions in supply, but there are significant numbers. Mm. So there's no doubt is if you're bringing your supplies in and we're shipping them back and forward, remember, that actually if there's a delay in that, there'll be a delay in the supply of medicines and that will happen. But actually, I've said to you, it could be a guideline change. It could be a mm. fluctuation in the pound. In fact, it's getting worse and intensifying. The only answer to me is to bring back some of the manufacturing into Europe and actually take away the politics out of this, folks. This is not a political issue. This is where we matter when we work together. This should not be about trade. This should be about saying this is about essential medicines. Now, the problem, why I say that, is the problem is far worse in developing countries because they have no regulators and a huge supply of their medicines is short at any one time if we decide to pay more money for it. And so Mm -hmm. this should go out of the political arena and become a real health uh, campaign where we join together and say we need to solve this on an international level. So that's another rant uh, from Carl. We knew we would get it in the end. So that's it for this month. We will be back again soon with more from the world of EBM. But uh, until then, please do get in touch. If you don't want to to let us know in person, then you can always go to wherever you get this. So on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or or anywhere and rate and review us. Uh, That also gets back to us and we want to know what you think that way. So until next time, uh, I'm Duncan Jarvis. I'm Carl Hennigan. And I'm Helen McDonald. Thanks for listening. Thanks.